As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been born blind. Teacher, whose sin caused him to be born blind? Was it his own or his parents' sin? His blindness has nothing to do with his sins or his parents' sins. He is blind so that God's power might be seen at work in him. As long as it is they, we must keep on doing the work of him who sent me. Night is coming. And no one can work. <laughs> While I am in the world, I am the light for the world. After he said this, Jesus spat on the ground and made some mud with the spittle. He rubbed the mud on the man's eyes. Go and wash your face in the pool of Siloam. This name means scent. So the man went, washed his face, and came back, seeing. His neighbors then, and the people who had seen him begging before this, asked, Isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? He's the one. No, he isn't. He just looks like him. I am the man. How is it that you can now see? The man called Jesus made some mud, rubbed it on my eyes, and told me to go to Siloam and wash my face. So I went, and as soon as I washed, I could see. Where is he? I don't know. Then they took to the Pharisees, the man who had been blind. The day that Jesus made the mud and cured him of his blindness was a Sabbath. The Pharisees then asked the man again how he had received his sight. 
He put some mud on my eyes. I washed my face. And now I can see. You got it now. Don't touch it. Don't touch it. <laughs> when the light is on, do not touch it. <clears throat> wow, that's a pretty powerful image, isn't it? And we could just kind of end the sermon right there and go home because what we just saw is, uh, is absolutely incredible. And uh, unfortunately, you won't be so fortunate. Um, but this morning, we come to the last message in our study of John's gospel, at least for now. We're going to take a break for Christmas as we focus on an Advent series of messages just simply titled The Gifts of Christmas. We're going to start that next week as it already is the first Sunday of Advent. And then we're going to return to this series that we've been calling Taking Jesus Seriously right after Christmas. And we'll likely finish um, by uh, Easter or early April. And we've been going through this gospel chapter by chapter for the most part, highlighting a particular event in, uh, that John has recorded for us in the life of Jesus. And today we find ourselves at chapter 9. And we just saw the events of the first 15 verses in all of its drama from the visual Bible. Uh, what makes this chapter unique, and I would even dare say somewhat challenging, is that the entire chapter really continues the drama that it was started here in these first 15 verses. And the events that actually follow are just as compelling. Typically, this is where we would focus our reading. And we would stay focused on the healing. But I found myself studying and studying and working my way through this chapter and taking notes and reading some more and finally just coming to the place going, enough, I've got to try to gather all this information and put it into something that resembles a message. And honestly, I'm not even sure if I've been all that successful. But what I'd like to do is just work our way through this historical account, adding some instruction and clarification, and learning a few lessons along the way. It is a dramatic account, and like any good drama with a great plot, it's full of great characters. So let's look at this. And I invite you, if you have your Bibles, or if you use a smartphone, whatever, keep it open on John chapter 9, and we will work our way through this, and I will refer to, uh, to almost every verse in this chapter. So there's a lot here. Let's go. First of all, we are introduced to the disciples. Now, there's a couple of other characters we immediately know, and we'll come to Jesus and to the blind man. But John 9 is the account of Jesus healing a man who was born in blindness. And as we try to set ourselves into this scene, I, I, I start by pointing out the ordinary, or sorry, start to point out the obvious that this is no ordinary blind man. He's not blind because at some point in his life he suffered from some eye disease and the result was blindness or some tragic accident that resulted in loss of sight. No, this man was actually born blind. He had never ever in his life seen a flower. He, he never saw the sun rise or the sun set. He never saw the joy of children playing. He never saw the beauty of a woman or the face of an adorable baby. He had no ability to work, no prospects for marriage. Here was a man who without a future, 
without hope, relegated to begging on the well-traveled streets near the temple just to survive another day. His identity was shaped by his disability and his situation. He was the blind beggar. No doubt he was well-known. He probably sat and begged at his corner, maybe the only corner he knew for many years. People walking by would be like, oh, there's the blind beggar. I see him here every day. He takes up his place on my way to the temple, on my way to work, wherever it is. I see him on that same corner day after day after day. Jesus and his disciples come along, and the disciples, they want to know why. So they ask Jesus, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? See, their real why question is they want to know the origin of his suffering. They assume that there must be some kind of a connection between sin and suffering. So they want to know who is responsible. Is it this man and his sin? Or is it his parents' sin? And this was a common understanding of sin in first century Judaism. Now this question alone, it raises the whole issue of pain and suffering. And we could spend the rest of our time just trying to sort that out. But we won't. What I will say is that this verse has led to much confusion. And even in our day, there are some who believe that sickness and suffering must be the result of sin or a lack of faith. It's like we almost need to find someone to blame. Many years ago, I was faced with a serious problem in the church that I was serving at the time. Our associate pastor's 18-year-old daughter was diagnosed with a brain tumor. That was a serious problem. But what was even worse, there was a man whose twisted theology caused him to conclude that the cancer must be because there was sin in the pastor's home and life. Well, if we just stop and think for a moment, the obvious is, of course there's sin. I mean, have we looked into the mirror of the Ten Commandments lately? Or have we struggled with pride or lust or envy or just anything lately? Anyway, I had to meet with this person because not only did he believe that, he was actually going around telling people in the church that this was the problem. And so I sat down with him and asked him to help me understand this very passage of Scripture. And it ruined me, because I can never read this passage without thinking about this character again. But here's this blind man, blind since birth, and he's become the focus of an interesting theological case study, both then in Jesus' day and even now. Jesus says in verse 3, It was not because of his sins or his parents' sins. And I thought that was a pretty clear and compelling argument. Jesus, in his own words, saying, Listen, you dimwits, this was not because of any sin, either the man or his parents. Well, the gentleman I was meeting with, he didn't buy it. Can you believe he responded in this way? Well, what about his grandparents' sin? Haven't you ever heard of generational sin? I should have thrown him out of my office then and there. 
but it wasn't very pastorly to do that. But I thought maybe I could convince him with other scriptures. And we worked our way through various scriptures and Job and around the place we went. And you know what? It ended badly. It didn't work. Which will have to be a story for another day. But Jesus went on to say this. This happened so that the power of God could be seen in him. This happened so that the power of God could be seen in him. So Jesus re- rejects the disciples' line of questioning. But his answer could almost be misunderstood in this way. That God somehow brought suffering to this man so that he might be glorified in the man's healing. Now that's not very comforting either, is it? Because we don't want to see this as God somehow inflicting pain and suffering on people simply to glorify himself, as if he had an ego or an image problem. Great, I'm just going to smite him with some suffering, then I'm going to come along and heal him. That's going to do wonders for my image. Didn't see it like that at all. Certainly God is sovereign, and he can do as he pleases, but we should never blame him for the pain and suffering in the world. Sure, there are times that God uses suffering to be corrective, to set us on the right path. Other times, he he might use suffering to be constructive, to shape our characters to be more like Jesus. That's what James wrote about in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And so, yes, God is glorified when a person is healed. But God did not cause this man's suffering. But he can take the suffering of an individual and give it a divine purpose. Now, one thing we have to caution against when it comes to this issue of pain and suffering is pat answers. We we can't just quote scripture and say, well, that's, that's that. And sometimes the best answer to the question of suffering is to simply say this, I, I don't know. I don't know why these things happen. But I do know this. I believe in a God that loves and cares and heals. And so we trust him no matter what. So Jesus is in this passage, of course. He's another one of the characters, central character, I would say, along with this blind man. And in verse 5, he says that his work was to bring glory to the Father by essentially bringing salvation to humanity. And before he heals the man, he makes this I am declaration. He says, I am the light of the world. And it would be so easy to just see this as maybe just a throwaway comment, but it's such a rich and deliberate statement. Throughout John's gospel, we have seen references to light and to darkness. Think about what is about to happen. A man living in total darkness is about to be miraculously healed, and he'll be able to see light for the very first time. And this right here is actually a key to understanding the whole chapter. Because John loves double meanings. Remember our study from when Jesus said he was the bread of life? It was a physical reference to a spiritual truth. And now he's about to do the same thing. He says, in essence, this man's physical healing is going to become a symbol of spiritual healing. His darkness will be replaced with light. 
Let's see how this unfolds. We look at the healing in verse 6 and 7. Then he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva, and spread the mud over the man's blind eyes. He told him, go wash yourself in the pool of Shalom. Shalom means scent. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. Think about this man. Had no idea what was going on around him. All he heard was, I don't know what the sound of rubbing saliva into dirt sounds like, but that's all he heard. Did Jesus pronounce, I'm going to rub some mud on your eyes? (laughs) Ah, Sure. (laughs) Go ahead. He might have been rather reluctant, except for the fact that he probably heard the conversation that was going on between Jesus and his disciples. A blind man would have his other senses heightened, and so maybe he was incredibly acute with his hearing. Are they talking about me? Oh, they're talking about a man born blind. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes, they are talking about me. And he would have heard Jesus' answer and his declaration, and, and maybe finally... He's got something to hope for. After all, he was in a totally desperate situation. And at this point, I'm sure he said, I'll do anything. So he is sent by Jesus to wash in the pool of Shalom. It was on the south end of the city of Jerusalem. And since he was sent by Jesus, and Jesus was sent by the Father to bring glory to him, Jesus is ultimately the source of the healing, not the water or the pool itself. But the man is obedient to the instructions of Jesus. And so he goes off, he washes in the pool, and he comes back with his sight. And for the first time in in his life, he sees the light of day. He doesn't just feel the warmth of the sun. He sees the sun. And he sees people's faces. And all the places he had only previously heard about. And the man is healed. But what happens next is fascinating. Because this healing caused quite a stir in the community. You see, the community knew him well. He he was, after all, the blind beggar, seen on the streets for years. But now, in verse 8, his neighbors and others who knew him as a blind beggar asked each other, Isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? I like that. Used to. Past tense. He doesn't have to beg anymore. His life has been transformed and the entire community is talking about it. If this had been a Facebook post, formerly blind beggar receives sight, it would have been liked hundreds and thousands of times and the comments would have come streaming in. Is this the same man that always uh, begged on on the corner there by the kosher food truck? Yes. I don't think so. But it sure looks like him. You see, the community desperately wanted to identify the blind beggar and the healer. And the comments continued to get posted. How did this happen? Can he do it again? Can someone please confirm that this is the blind man? Finally, the blind man speaks up for himself. Yes! Yes, I am 
the same one. Well, who healed you? What happened? The formerly blind man, who I then found that was too much to write out in my notes, so it just became FBM. Okay, so for here on out, when you see FBM, it just means formerly blind man. The man they called Jesus made mud and spread it over my eyes and told me, Go to the pool of Shalom and wash yourself. So I went and washed, and now I can see. Almost in disbelief, they worked frantically to sort out the details and the conflicting comments. But you start to see here the identity of Jesus starting to emerge. The formerly blind man said that it was the man they called Jesus who healed him. Jesus. It's no ordinary name. This is the name that Joseph was given for the, for the child born to the Virgin Mary. The angel said to him, you are to give him the name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. Where is he now, they asked. I don't know. What I found interesting is that there was a lot of debate, even some division. And certainly lots of questions. But what seemed absence was the excitement. Where is the excitement? Instead of celebrating the transformation of this man, they investigate, they interrogate. I wonder, though, if sometimes we miss the power of God or the miracle of transformed lives because we get so caught up in wanting to know how and who and where and why and did they say the right things and did they do the right things and we miss the wonder and the excitement of the miracle well certainly the Pharisees (laughs) they weren't very excited about this and they weren't going to leave this alone so the, the community brings this formerly blind man to the Pharisees looking for advice. (laughs) You know where this is going, don't you? This should be good. Dragged before the Pharisees like he's done something wrong. These uptight sourpusses, they couldn't see the excitement of the miracle either. They couldn't accept it. Why? Because it challenged their assumptions. Their main concern had nothing to do with his healing It had everything to do with the fact that the healing took place on the Sabbath. And since he violated the Sabbath by working, he could not have done this. Because spitting was considered work. Mixing mud was considered work. And so again, the formerly blind man is asked, how did this happen? Verse 15, so he told them. He put the mud over my eyes, and when I washed it away, I could see. And while the Pharisees, they wanted a theological answer, the man just reviews the facts. There was mud, I washed, and I received my sight. 
he had this bottom line perspective and it caused some dissension in the ranks of the Pharisees. If you're still following along, verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man, Jesus, is not from God for he is working on the Sabbath. But others said, but how could an ordinary sinner do such marvelous signs? So there was deep division of opinion among them. You see, their logical conclusion is that since Jesus did this on the Sabbath, he must be a sinner, and a sinner could not be acting in the power of God. They just discredited him. He's sinning, he's working, he's breaking the the, the commandments. I read that Calvin liked to think that Jesus, because he did a lot of healing on the Sabbath, did you ever notice that? That Jesus may have actually done this on purpose. I kind of like that. You know, his disciples may, Jesus, Jesus, it's the Sabbath. He's like, I know it is. Watch this. (laughs) You know? Then the Pharisees again questioned the man who had been blind, past tense, and demanded, what's your opinion about this man who healed you? The man replied, I think he must be a prophet. He must be a prophet. Man sent from God with a prophetic word. The first-hand testimony of the formerly blind man wasn't enough, and so the Pharisees, they call in his parents. The Jewish leaders, verse 18, still refused to believe the man had been blind and could now see. So they called in his parents, verse 19. They asked them, just stop for a second. They refused to believe. Isn't that unbelievable? Really? He was a blind man. He could see. There was no arguing. It was verifiable. But they refused to believe that he could now see. So they call in the parents and they ask him three questions. Is this your son? Was he born blind? And if so, how can he now see? Is this your son? Yes, we know this is our son. Was he born blind? Yes, he was born blind. If so, how can he see? Oh, well, we don't know how he can see or who healed him. Better ask him. I mean, he's old enough to speak for himself. (laughs) Sorry, I... I find some tremendous irony in that. His own parents couldn't celebrate the fact of his miraculous healing. And they totally passed the buck. They totally sidestepped the question. Because I think by now they knew exactly who healed him. That wasn't even the question. They said, how can he now see? Well, we don't know who. We don't know who. I mean, they basically indict themselves with their answer. Why didn't they answer the question honestly? Verse 22, his parents said this because they were afraid. Because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who announced that anyone saying Jesus was the Messiah would be expelled from the synagogue. I wish I had time to talk about fear because fear just absolutely immobilizes us, cripples us, and keeps us from stepping out and doing the very things that God calls us to do and requires courage. As we're going to see in a moment, it was courage that the formerly blind man had, but not his parents. 
But they were aware that the Pharisees had a campaign of fear and intimidation going. Anyone who said that Jesus was the Messiah, they would be kicked out of the synagogue. And the parents knew this, and they were afraid. And so they direct the Pharisees back to their son. I mean, he's on his own now. So much for family support. They distance themselves. And so here we go again. The Pharisees call the formerly blind man back in again. Because the parents cop out and say, he is old enough, ask him. And so they do. And they call in the formerly blind man. And the exchange between the parents and the, or sorry, the Pharisees and the formerly blind man, it gets heated and the tension starts to grow. This is where it gets dramatic. And, and maybe we should have just watched the whole chapter and on the video and left it at that. But you, you see, this, this miracle created a problem for the Pharisees, right? They needed to discredit Jesus because in their own tradition, it was said that miraculous signs can only be worked by an authentic man of God. And verse 25, so, sorry, verse 24. <clears throat> so for the second time, <clears throat> they called in the man who had been blind, past tense, and told him, God should get the glory for this because we know that Jesus, this man Jesus is a sinner. Or give glory to God. And it was basically a solemn charge to tell the truth. In other words, you know what? Just agree with us. Jesus is a sinner. He couldn't have done this. And we'll just carry on from here and all will be well. And the man wasn't about to cooperate. He just goes back to the facts. He says, well, you know, I can't really comment about his status as a sinner, but I cannot deny my experience. I was blind, but now I see. I was blind, but now I see. Isn't that the testimony of John Newton, the former slave trader turned pastor and hymn writer? Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. But now I see. The Pharisees had no idea how lost they were. And in a desperate effort to get the man to contradict himself or maybe just to exhaust him, Right? They ask him again what they already knew, like a, a good detective trying to break a suspect. We're just going to ask the same questions over again. Maybe we'll phrase it a little bit differently, but we're going to eventually you're going to trip up and you're going to reveal that this is just a big hoax and it never really happened. Verse 26, but what did he do? They asked, how did he heal you? Can you imagine the frustration? of this formerly blind man. Just nobody's believing him. He's on the verge of totally losing it here, I'm sure, because he's speaking from experience and he begins to show how ridiculous the Pharisees' questions are. Verse 27, look, the man exclaimed, I told you once. Didn't you listen? Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? <laughs> what a great response. What a great comeback. 
But it doesn't go over very, very well because now he's really angered the Pharisees. They're ticked off. Remember, they were all about fear and intimidation. But now he's pushing back and the tension starts to mount. Verse 28, then they cursed him and said, you are his disciples. But we are the disciples of Moses. We know God spoke to Moses, but we don't even know where this man comes from. Which wasn't true. They knew. Religious leaders knew the scriptures better than anyone else. They were trained, but they took pride in their knowledge. In fact, they knew it all. And if you know it all, and someone tells you that you don't know it all, what do you respond as? Okay, smarty pants, we know God spoke to Moses, and we're disciples of Moses. And he just goes back and says, why? The man says, that's very strange, verse 30. He healed my eyes, and yet you don't know where he comes from? We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but he is ready to hear those who worship him and do his will. Ever since the world began, no one has been able to open the eyes of someone born blind. If this man were not from God, he couldn't have done it. Isn't that great? An unschooled, ordinary man who had been blind his entire life can now see and he is able to pull all of the facts together and come to the obvious conclusion. And he uses the very theological traditions that the Pharisees valued most. He basically says to them, listen, I find this absolutely incredible. Your your unbelief in the face of the evidence is more of a miracle than my healing. Your unbelief in the face of the evidence is more of a miracle than my healing. And not surprisingly, they had no option but to continue to ignore the facts. They had nothing else. And what do you do when you clearly lose the argument? You resort to name-calling, right? You're ugly, and your mother dresses you funny. (laughs) Well, that's not exactly what they said, but they may as well have. Look at verse 34. You were born a total sinner. You were born a total sinner. That's why you were blind. That's what they're thinking. Because that was their belief. And now, are you trying to teach us And they threw him out of the synagogue. How dare you lecture us? So they used their authority and their power to silence the formerly blind man and they kick him out. Expelled. Well, as we close and wrap this up, let's look at the question. Verse 35 When Jesus heard what had happened, he found the man and asked, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe in the Son of Man? Oh, I love this. You can almost imagine the man kind of walking the streets of Jerusalem, returning to the place maybe he used to beg at, Wondering about all of what had happened. We're not sure. This is probably 
these events all took place over the course of maybe just a couple of days. But wondering, now what? (laughs) And Jesus hears about this. Don't you find it interesting that Jesus goes out looking for him? Jesus goes looking for him like a shepherd searching for a lost sheep because he had heard that the man had been thrown out and Jesus finds him. He finds him and asks him the most important question that anyone can ask anyone. Do you believe? Do you believe in the Son of Man? That is, the Messiah, the Christ. Who is he, sir? I I want to believe in him. So it seems he was eager to believe, he desired to believe, but, but who is he? Listen to these remarkable words of Jesus. You have seen him. You have seen him. And he is speaking to you. Just let that thing settle in. Do you get it? You can now see him. You're looking at him. He couldn't have said that before. I think Jesus might have even said that with a little smile on his face. Oh, the irony. The man born blind, his eyesight restored, and now is given eyes to see spiritually. A life once filled with hopelessness and darkness, both physically and spiritually. Jesus simply didn't simply give him sight. He gave him life. People living without Jesus, listen, are in a situation no less desperate than the blind beggar was. Jesus has already referred several times in John's Gospel to those who walk in darkness. That's the condition of the blind. Isaiah the prophet writes, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light, and Jesus is that light. And for the next four weeks, we're going to be thinking about Jesus, the light of the world, and the gift that he was to us at Christmas. And those who see, those who are given eyes to see, are those who are able to admit their need for spiritual sight. They recognize their own sinfulness and their desperate need of a Savior. Those who are spiritually blind, they don't think that they're missing anything, and they deny their need. They have no need for salvation. But this man who once was physically blind, he gets it. He understands the need to see spiritually. Because at the beginning, he could not see Jesus, either physically or spiritually. But look at his wonderful response to the question, verse 38. Yes, Lord. Lord. I I wish I could trace all of the time. Remember, he was Jesus. He was a prophet. Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus' identity is emerging throughout this entire chapter, and now he is Lord. And he worshiped Jesus. I believe. I believe that's it. That's it. So the question is put to us. 
Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah who lived and who died for our sins and rose again on the third day so that we could have forgiveness and eternal life? Friends, that is the ultimate life question, isn't it? Do you believe? It's a simple, personal yes or no question. It's not, well, I'm not sure yet. That's a no. Maybe later. That's a no. It's yes or no. So can I ask you again, do you believe? And if the answer is no, can we introduce you to him today? He'd love to know you. He'd love to have a relationship with you. At the close of the service, come and ask about it. We'd love to introduce you to him. And if this day you say, yes, I believe, then like this formerly blind man, worship him. Worship him. What does that look like? Sing like never before. (laughs) Think about it. If you can say, yes, I believe, you once were in a total hopeless situation, walking in darkness, and now you have seen the light. And that should inspire and inform our worship. And we should sing like we've never sung before because that is giving praise and adoration and an expression to our worship. But before we think it's just in our singing, we just honor him with our life. And we live and pursue holiness. And we live in obedience. The things he asks us to do, we do. And the things he asks us not to do, we don't do. And lastly, we just we tell others about him. The blind man was interrogated, but I'm sure after this scene, he went around and says, can I tell you what happened to me? Can I tell you what happened to me? Once I was blind. Once I was blind. But now I can see. And if that's your testimony, if that's your story, then let's tell others about it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for this historical narrative that is rich and deep with meaning and insight and a fascinating conversation that has taken place between Jesus and his disciples and the community and the Pharisees and this formerly blind man, all culminating in the most important question that we ever have to contemplate. Do you believe? Father, for those that are here this morning that might say no to that, and maybe like the parents, it's their fear. It's the fear of the consequences of saying yes to Jesus. I pray that you would give them the courage to overcome that. And that they would be introduced to Jesus today. And Father, for those of us who say yes, we believe. We ask that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we would see you in all of your fullness and all of your glory and all of your holiness and in all of your greatness, and all of your might, and that we would live our lives accordingly. In Jesus' name we pray.